Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. All right, um, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, welcome, my name is Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm Research Director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, which gives me the privilege of uh, hosting this seminar. Um, uh, here at WAP, we are focused on closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. And uh, this seminar contributes to our mission in, in many respects. This is our, our first speaker this month. We have, we have a couple of speakers actually clustered who are going to talk about um, getting women into STEM. And this is right. your, actually our first talk in the series. And obviously, there's a lot of interest in that topic. We're thrilled to have you here. Let me not take any more time. I want to introduce, we're very, we're really excited here to have. Um, we have Joe Bowler here today, um, professor of mathematics education at Stanford. <laughs> Joe Bowler is what we refer to um, in academia as a triple threat. Uh, <laughs> a a, 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 a formidable <laughs> scholar, teacher, and institution builder. Um, she, her work has been um, devoted to um, mathematical reform and particularly to um, you know, equitable, inclusive uh, mathematics classrooms. She's also formed an organization, U-Cubed, uh, uh, which is housed at Stanford University, um, which is basically devoted to uh, supporting uh, parents and educators of children uh, in K through 12. Um, and so we are just thrilled, absolutely thrilled to have you here. And obviously there's a lot of demand, so I'm gonna, I'll just ask folks simply at this point to join me in welcoming you. Thank you. So I'm very excited to be here. This is a different audience to one I normally present to, and I know you're much broader and have all sorts of variety within you, so that's exciting. Can I just ask for a quick show of hands if you are uh, in education? Okay, so that helps me a little bit. Um, so what I thought I'd present today, I was actually asked to present recently at the White House at a day that was convened on women in STEM, and they, the goal of their day was to get research to the many organizations that are working on the issue of getting more women and girls into STEM, so they invited all the lots of uh, startups and companies and established and newer companies to the event and had a few researchers present. So that's actually how I came to be presenting here, because... Um, somebody else who was there asked me to do that. but So I thought I'd give you more or less the same presentation. I showed them at the White House. It's a little bit more expanded because I didn't get half an hour at the White House. So um, that's where we are. So where are we with girls in STEM? It turns out that despite common uh, misconceptions that boys are ahead in mathematics or science achievement. We know that achievement is equal in the K-12 system across science, technology, and mathematics subjects. But the big issue for us is the participation rates, which reveal stark inequities. Um, this shows you an interesting snapshot of 10 years of change in terms of undergraduate degrees in the US. And you can see that when it comes to biology and chemistry, fantastic, 18 to 50, going up to 51% of women participating. Math remains in need of some work. Um, but when we look down here, physics, engineering, and CS shows us something really interesting, which is a massive decline in the number of women 
uh, over a 10-year period choosing CS degrees. So plenty for us to work on there. I do specialise in mathematics and we'll be thinking mostly about math today. But So this is what we know from maths achievement. Janet Hyde has done a, a, a number of meta-analyses that show that even over the past 10 years and 259 studies and over 3 million people, girls were ahead, this is in math studies, in 49% of them and boys in 51%. A slight, if any, difference. Um, yet, as I said, the discourse and the beliefs amongst parents and others is that boys are ahead in maths, they're not. Uh, this is the college freshmen who are intending to major in STEM without biology taken out is taken out of this and so you can see some pretty severe differences and when we get to the doctoral level it gets worse so what does this mean there are many people out there who think that women not participating in stem is just their choice and everything is fine and that's okay but what we know is that girls and women's choices are restricted by the environments they're in up to the time that they make choices, and I'll be telling you more about that. Um, we all, and we also know that the lack of girls and women in science and technology disciplines impoverishes those disciplines, which would greatly benefit from having more women and girls, both inside university disciplines and also in the field and the workplace. Uh, and obviously we have, as a whole, insufficient numbers entering STEM fields for the economy. And we know that when we increase gender equality, there is significant economic growth in every country. So um, it's important. And I believe I, that there are two neglected areas when we think about why we don't have enough girls and women in STEM subjects. And they are around teaching and also around mindset. And I want to talk to you about both of those things today. So um, one of the points I made at the White House is just how critical mathematics is to girls' choices in going forward with STEM subject. It is required for STEM majors, uh, but we know that from early years, the experiences girls have in mathematics classrooms causes them to abandon STEM aspirations. Until we change what happens in maths classrooms, we have very little hope of seeing any changes in those um, subject areas we saw, uh, CS, physics, any mathematical subject. So to give the very broad picture, mathematics is typically in classrooms offered as a dry, abstract, procedural subjects, subject with very few opportunities to understand in depth. And that is a major problem. It's a major problem for all children, and it's a particular problem for girls because we know, and we can think about the reasons for this, but for whatever reason, girls do exhibit a greater desire for understanding than boys in classrooms, and they develop higher levels of anxiety when they don't achieve it. So we know this is a phenomenon. Girls are the ones in maths classrooms who want to know why, why it works, and some boys also have those questions, but there is a phenomenon, um, and we see that phenomenon reflected in uh, both measures of anxiety and achievement, and working with the PISA team at the moment, you probably know PISA are tests that are given every four years, international tests, the US generally does not very well. Um, but I, I was with the PISA team in Paris, and they are doing gender analyses, and one of the first things they said to me is this, that in their 65 countries, boys outscored girls in the mathematics tests in 38 of them. So this is a, a huge concern to me. 
Um, one, one concern I have about this is PISA's publication of these kind of results because we actually know that achievement is equal in school, but there's something about giving people time tests um, such as this one that, pr that produces these gender differences. Uh, PISA, from the PISA analysis, we also know that when they control for level of anxiety, there are no, all those achievement differences disappear. So we do have an issue where we are producing girls who are unconfident in maths, and confidence um, is extremely important. So we know from many studies that when mathematics is taught well, and what I mean by that is when it's taught as a broad, multidimensional subject that involves conducting inquiries, making connections, reasoning, when it's taught as a creative subject, then everybody does better. But it also results in gender inequities disappearing, gender differences disappearing, both in achievement and in participation. So studies of different types of teaching, both in mathematics and science, show over and over again that in a traditional teaching of maths and science, when a teacher stands at the front and lectures and students complete exercises, girls underachieve often and they opt out in very large numbers. When teaching is more inquiry-based, so in mathematics classrooms people are given bigger problems that they have to think about and apply methods, and in science obviously involves practical applications, achievement is equal and participation is equal. It's a really important um, Findings so that we what we know is that in this type of classroom the girls will underachieve and underparticipate. Boys, interestingly, do the same in both types. They're sort of impervious to the type of <laughs> instruction in some ways, whereas girls really fluctuate between these. And in inquiry-based classes, which is, of course is what we want all students working on anyway. Um, achievement, as I said, and participation is equal. So this is what we know. When we're in mathematics classrooms, girls more than boys, and it's not a clear divide between girls and boys, but girls more than boys want to know why methods work, where they come from, and how they connect with each other to the broader domain. We have many um, studies and examples that show us this. These are really important questions. They're important questions for boys. And there are plenty of boys who also want to know this and who ought to. Um, but what we find is, is that when these are not available, when girls are not able uh, to access why methods work and where they come from and how they connect, they develop anxiety because they, there is a realisation that they're not getting a full understanding of the mathematics. And that uh, plays out differently for boys and for girls. And that's that has been found to be true in both maths and science. Along those lines, in a meta-analysis of 123 different STEM programs for girls, these were the top four features that girls rated as the most important for their achievement and participation. And you can see, again, um, that these hands-on experience, project-based curriculum are all opportunities that they're finding to go into more depth and to really understand the subject. So we have a problem in education um, and in mathematics in particular, because math, as I'm fond of saying, has the biggest gap between what we know works from research, in uh, from research and what happens in classrooms. Teaching matters enormously, and girls are making decisions about STEM participation in second grade, in third grade, and every grade on from there, but it's generally neglected, and uh, it's 
also at the heart of the inequities we see. This was a great report from the AAUW, why, I'm sure many of you know it, why so few women in STEM, but there's no mention of teaching in that report. They look at stereotypes and role models and what happens in the field. So I'm pushing and trying to bring teaching into this conversation. It's a neglected area, um, but a very important one. So. One of the things that's most going wrong in mathematics classrooms, um, there's things going wrong with the teaching, but is around the beliefs and messages that people, beliefs people hold about mathematics and their own potential. So I released a book a few years ago. In fact, we're just re-releasing this with Penguin. This is a Penguin-published book called What's Math Got to Do With It? Um, that communicates a lot of the ideas for teachers and parents. In England, we called it the elephant in the classroom. It's really... <laughs> The same book with different spellings, and uh, <laughs> it also has some different examples from classrooms. But anyway, we called it the elephant in the classroom because I argued in the book that there's a big elephant that's standing in the middle of most math classrooms. And you know the expression, the elephant in the room, which is an idea everyone thinks about but nobody talks about. And the elephant that's standing in most math classrooms is the idea that only some kids are going to be good at math. Turns out teachers believe that. The kids believe it, parents believe it, and until we change that single idea, we will never, I, don't, I, I believe, remove uh, underachievement and inequities in this country. And it's a very strong idea that's in the culture, that's transmitted on TV shows. I spend way too much time these days watching uh, Disney and tweeny TV shows because I have two daughters, uh, or getting glimpses of them, and I am amazed that math comes up every single day in these shows, every day. And it's always presented in the same way, something that's inaccessible, unappealing, only for certain groups of kids. So these messages are widespread. And the research says something very different. I'm sure many of you know here that there's been really a revolution in the science of knowledge and understanding over the last 10 years. And it's come about because of the new knowledge they have about brain plasticity. So we know that when learning happens, a synapse fires in your brain. It's like an electric current that goes between parts of the brain. And synapses are a little bit like footprints in the sand in that the brain will form a path. But if you never return to the idea or look at it deeply, it will kind of wash away. But if you do, then it will form structural change. And this brain plasticity, good news for all of us, goes all the way through adulthood. And one of the um, studies that really showed this, and I'll tell you why this is so important for girls in STEM in a sec, uh, came actually from studies of London black cab drivers. Who here has been in a black cab in London? Quite a few of you. So you may not have realised when you were inside, the black cabs are like the queen bee of taxis in um, London. And, but you may not have known when you were in it just how qualified the driver was. It turns out to become a black cab driver you take uh, a course that takes between two and four years. And at the end of that course, you take a test, which is just beautifully called the knowledge. And to, <laughs> to pass the knowledge, you have to have memorized 25,000 streets and 20,000 landmarks in central London. London is not based on a grid structure, as many cities <laughs> here are. So it's a pretty challenging task. And what they, have now, what they now know is that at the end of that training period, taxi the cab drivers has a, have a larger hippocampus in their brain. And the hippocampus is specialised in using and acquiring spatial information. Um, at the end of being a, a black cab driver, when they retire, the hippocampus shrinks back down again. So this was shocking to scientists and um, 
Around the same time, you may have seen this in the news, a six-year-old girl had half of her brain removed. Um, she was having fits that the doctors couldn't control, and this was a revolutionary uh, operation. And they knew that she would not be able to move after this because that the brain controls your physical movement and expected her to be paralyzed possibly forever, you know, for a long time. And she completely stunned and amazed the doctors because within months she was running around uh, using, again, her physical functions. And all, of they, all that they could conclude was that the missing side of the brain had regrown in its connections. So incredible stories and research coming out and records and then the one I always share with educators um, that's really important is that a three-week training program where people worked on something for 10 minutes each day changed the permanent structure of the people's brains so it's very, this is very important for maths teachers to know every child this tells us can excel in maths to all levels of school and beyond there is no such thing as the math brain. Nobody's born with a math brain. Nobody's born without one. Everybody can grow these brain, brain connections. Um, doesn't happen, of course, if you're put into a low-level class and given low-level work. But the potential is there for everybody. And what kids are born with pales into insignificance um, compared to the millions of opportunities they have for this brain growth. So why this is particularly important for math is this. Uh, you Probably many of you are aware of the research of Carol Dweck, um, but she has uh, decades of research that there are, this is a funny order, basically we all have a mindset, and there are two types of mindset, a growth mindset and a fixed mindset, and um, kids with a growth mindset and people, us, basically believe that the harder you work, the smarter you get. People with a fixed mindset kind of fundamentally believe that you've sort of got a level of smartness and you can improve it, but it's pretty fixed. And what we know is that these mindsets predict achievement. And the reason for that is people with a growth mindset have a set of behaviors that are very different. They're more persistent, they're encouraged by failure, and they will choose challenging work and subjects like STEM. Um, kids with a fixed mindset give up easily, when they fail on something or struggle, they interpret it as meaning they're not a math person, they can't go on, and they'll avoid challenging work. So this graph just shows you they measured mindset, they did surveys of mindsets and followed kids over two years in math. And you can see that the kids with the fixed mindset were the ones on this trajectory, whereas kids with a growth mindset are going onwards and upwards um, throughout life. So... We know that kids develop a fixed mindset from the type of praise they're given and parents. This is very important. Uh, what we tend to do a lot in the States, and I've had to change the way I talk to my own children, is praise them for being smart. You hear it everywhere you go. Parents are constantly saying, you're so smart, you're so smart. What we know kids hear from that is, oh, good, I'm smart. And then later when they mess up, and they will, they think, oh, I'm not so smart, and they go through life measuring their smartness in those ways. It's really important that we praise kids by saying, it's great that you learn that, it's fantastic that you work your math or have achieved that, but not praise them. Fixed mindset thinking applies to students from across the achievement spectrum, but it is particularly prevalent amongst high-achieving girls and high-achieving women um, and whenever I go into de more depth than I'll probably do today around this, 
women uh, in all sorts of professions everywhere will quickly say that that's me and that was me. So we, it's an interesting why high achieving girls have this more than anybody else, quite possibly to do with the, the praise they get. Um, other things that show you how important mindset is for gender, Carol um, and her team went to look at calculus in, um, courses in uh, Colombia and they found that stereotyping was alive and well and that the women were getting stereotype messages about their potential, and I know that to be true in most math departments, but that it only impacted those women with a fixed mindset. When women had a fixed mindset and they received these stereotype messages, they abandoned STEM. Women with a growth mindset who received the messages were able to uh, not, not be changed by them. Another very interesting study um, when they gave a group, lots of sixth grade students hard problems that they couldn't do, they found that the sixth grade girls just fell apart uh, when they couldn't do them and when they got this challenge. And the greater they scored on an IQ test, the worse uh, their experience, whereas for boys the opposite was true. So we know that there's something very particular going on um, with high achieving girls and mindset. And unfortunately, mathematics classrooms, as they traditionally exist across America, communicate fixed mindset messages constantly to students through the way they group them, uh, the tasks that they are used. If you're in a maths classroom, getting short questions that are right or wrong, those themselves of communicating fixed messages to the students about math and uh, and the ways that they're talk talking to students, and these are extremely damaging, they're damaging to all students, and they're particularly damaging to girls. Um, while, you know, more on math before um, I move out of it, we also know from neuroscience, very interestingly, coming out from studies of the brain, that we should not ever be associating math with speed. And this is why we now know that... Um, your working memory in your brain is where you hold math facts. And what they've found from brain scans is that when people are anxious, their working memory is blocked. So you may have experienced this. I know I have. Uh, if you've ever had to do math publicly or under some sort of pressure, maybe everyone's watching you, and you suddenly feel like, oh my gosh, my mind's gone blank. I just can't think what these numbers are. That is the impact of uh, anxiety or stress blocking the working memory. So we know that stress uh, does this to kids, but this is what they get in classrooms. This comes from uh, my local district, where my kids go, uh, from first grade upwards. 50 questions to take in three minutes. And these are pervasive across the United States. I teach Stanford undergraduates at Stanford who are math traumatized. And when I talk to them about what happened, where, you know, where, how did this come about, half of them, at least, will say second grade time tests. Um, so here's the irony with this. Most people think that to be good at math, you have to be quick with math and quick with math facts. But actually, that's not the case. And in fact, uh, many mathematicians are slow with math. I, and I don't say that to be rude to mathematicians, but they're slow because they think carefully and deeply. And one of the mathematicians that I often talk about is one of the top mathematicians in the world. He won the Fields Medal, and he was a slow math thinker, and he wrote an autobiography in which he talked about how he was made to feel stupid in school. 
and we can hear from him a little bit. So he said, Lauren, this is Lauren Schwartz, I was deeply uncertain about my own intellectual capacity. I thought I was unintelligent, and it's true that I was and still am rather slow. I need time to seize things because I always need to understand them fully. And towards the end of 11th grade, I secretly thought of myself as stupid, and I worried about this for a long time. I'm still just as slow, and at the end of 11th grade, I took the measure of the situation and came to the conclusion that rapidity doesn't have a precise relation to intelligence. What is important, this is an important sentence, is to deeply understand things and their relations to each other, and this is where intelligence lies. The fact of being quick or slow isn't really relevant. Naturally, it's helpful, but it's neither necessary nor sufficient. So we know that speed isn't important um, in high levels of mathematics, and what is important is to think deeply um, and slowly sometimes. But what we do to kids in classrooms is communicate the idea very early in the day in the game that to be good at math you need to be fast with math facts. Uh, there is no when kids get stressed with things like time tests. Again, it's not the low achieving kids who get stressed. It happens across the achievement spectrum. But again, it particularly impacts girls. So one of the things that um, I am trying to do is to teach teachers that we need to dissociate math from speed and parents. We don't need flashcards. We don't need um, any of these things because we lose kids but who think slowly and deeply about math, and many of them, many of them are girls. So um, I'm very fortunate at the moment to be working with a um, filmmaker who made Race to Nowhere. Did anybody see Race to Nowhere? So she's working on a film now which is more upbeat than Race to Nowhere. Race to Nowhere was kind of depressing about the stre stress and pressure in schools in America. And, but anyway, in working on this sequel, she's realized that nearly all the parents and everybody who's stressed, and uh, um, it's about math. It's always about math. And so she's making a little math film, which features some of the work I've been doing. And I'm, I show, we, she made a little two-minute clip, which we showed in the White House, that I'm going to show you now. But in this film, um, what you see is... I've been working with some school districts in California and got them to change their teaching for, uh, from like procedural worksheet math to more inquiry-based math. And you'll hear from uh, one of the kids. So, so I press again? Yes. Is the sound on? In the United States, people think people have a math gene. Either you're born with it or you're not. If you don't have it, then you just don't have it. Teachers believe that, parents believe it, students believe it, and it's one of the reasons that we have such widespread math failure and math trauma in the States. I hated math. I absolutely hated it. I felt like I was like a little, like I wasn't nothing. When I went to other classes, I was like, well, I'm already failing in that class. Why don't I just fail in these classes? I wouldn't really try. I wouldn't push myself. It's amazing how many teachers have said to girls, don't worry, you don't need to be good at math. Math isn't your thing, don't worry about that. When kids get the idea that they're not a math person and they start this sort of downward trajectory, many careers are cut off from them. And this happens to a lot of women, unfortunately. Their career options shrink massively. So we have a situation now where most engineers and most people working in computer science are men. I hated math, to be honest with you, when I was younger. I felt that I couldn't do the problems quickly and I thought you had to do them really fast. I think a lot of students 
um, come in with some of the same ideas that I had as a middle school student. They think that if they make mistakes, that means that they're not smart. Working with Joe has been really helpful in breaking down those stereotypes. So what do you mean when you say this number? Wait, did you just add Can I borrow this one? I have like um, a connection with math now, definitely. Like it's like I'm open. And I'm, I feel like alive, and like I'm definitely like more energetic in science. We use math a lot, and I feel like when they bring up math subjects, I'm like, oh, I learned that already. I could be open to like learning new things. She's going to release this film to CNN probably next month, and there's much more in it. She shows Bob Moses' work. Um, it's good, so I think that <coughs> is going to get around. Um, so we, I have an, a website now and a new center at Stanford, as you heard about. The director, Kathy, is with me if you want to make connections with that work. And I just want to flash up that we have two papers on that site, if any of you are educators and want to do something about this. This paper uh, has the research that l shows that time tests are the early onset of math anxiety for a lot of kids. And this paper, which we just put up, has um, activities and ways to teach math facts without the fear, stress, memorization. And so it's great. I've always... You know, I'm a researcher at Stanford. I produce academic papers uh, that are read by a few hundred academics, probably. And um, we've started making these papers with teachers that include research, but also activities and things to do. And this one, we had 20,000 downloads in the first week. Um, so it's really, uh, I really like this way of getting research out to people. I'll show you that website in a bit. But... Um, I was interviewed a few weeks ago on the BBC, and in fact they interviewed the eight educators that they said were changing the future of education, and Ken Robinson was one, and uh, I shared in that interview, uh, which was kind of scary, but anyway, I shared with them that I never memorized my times tables as a child. I grew up in the progressive era of England, where they didn't do that, and it has never held me back at any time or place. Uh, I have number sense, I have an understanding of number, uh, to which she fired at me, what's eight nines or some time table question? So it's kind of a fun interview if you want to listen to that. It's, um, <laughs> the BBC know how to make good shows, uh, and that's on our website. But something else I want to uh, briefly mention is we give terrible messages to girls about mathematics and science. And you heard me say in that mm -hmm. film... Unfortunately, uh, I love elementary teachers. I think they're absolutely fantastic and in all ways, except for uh, what we know happens when girls struggle with math is they try to be sympathetic and nice about it and will say things like, don't worry, math isn't your thing. My niece was told that by her elementary teacher. She just finished her advanced math courses at university, but... Uh, it's a message that's given to a lot of girls, unfortunately, and when girls hear that message, that math isn't for them, that's, you know, it's the end of the road for them, uh, often in math, and that happens early. We know that when mothers tell their daughters, I was no good at math in school, their daughter's achievement immediately goes down, that same term. Um, and then one of the uh, recent studies, again, of the brain and math anxiety found that 
the degree of anxiety female elementary teachers have in math correlates with their female students' achievement. So, not the boys, but, ju but the girls. So we know that something's happening here, and many elementary teachers are math anxious. They're communicating in some ways this anxiety about math, and girls are soaking it up. Um, and so these, people always talk to me about, oh, our elementary teachers need more math knowledge. Uh, more, much more than that, they need uh, this to change. And unfortunately, we have a lot of teachers who themselves are very worried about math. Um, so that's important. And then we have a societal change that obviously is a uh, societal need for change obviously I think it's very interesting and I was talking about this over breakfast um, that in our society when girls underachieve everybody thinks it's internal to girls but when boys underachieve they think that something is wrong with the way we're teaching so we saw this in England where for years girls were behind boys in maths and nobody was really interested. They just assumed girls weren't very good at maths. In fact, your own president, well, we won't go to, <laughs> we won't go to talk about Larry Summers, but um, <laughs> people just believe that there's something different about girls. They don't do as well in maths. Then girls went ahead of boys in maths and started, uh, the boys started underachieving, at which point there was huge attention in the country, government, the government was pouring money into new policy groups, new groups. Everybody was looking at, why are boys underachieving? Is it the textbooks? Is it the, is it the way they're being taught? Do we need to change classrooms? And nobody at any point thought, well, maybe boys just can't do maths. Um, <laughs> and this goes back a long time in history. And in fact, many uh, historians talk about this guy, Reverend Bennett, when girls were noted as being more communicative back in the uh, 18th, 1897. His comment was, well, gold sparkles less than tinsel. <laughs> so we have this history of explaining away girls' overachievement and, um, you know, and always it comes down to this. So we have to be really careful about this. And even in good intention gender interventions, I worry that a lot of the times, like when we do a gender and maths camp, the, we're trying to change the girls, where actually the things that need to change are the teaching environments they're in that produce the, you know, their reluctance to do math. So uh, we want greater participation in STEM. Obviously, we have to remove the stereotyping that is still rampant. We have to be giving growth mindset messages, particularly in maths and science subjects. It's, we have to move from delivering subjects as a procedural memorization and... In math in particular, as long as we keep focusing on memorization and speed, we're going to lose a lot of extremely strong girls and women. Um, I want to finish by showing you a couple of things that are out there that might be useful to you. Two summers ago, I decided to try teaching an online course as a bit of an experiment um, because I knew that this new research we have on the brain and learning that teachers everywhere don't know it and nor will they get access to it. So I taught a MOOC um, on math, math learning and mindset and equity. Um, so MOOC is a massive open online class. It was open online um, for teachers, for parents, for administrators. 40,000 people took the class that summer. And that surprised me. I didn't expect that. And um, the statistics were great. And what was probably greatest, 95% of people at the end said they would change their teaching 
uh, or parenting, they changed their mindsets and belief in students. Eight times as many completed this as any other MOOC we know about um, because I taught it through a sort of pedagogy of active engagement where people were designing things and making things, not just listening to me talk. Stanford now charges, I'm afraid, not, not my decision uh, for this. I think it's $125, but people tell me it's really worth it and districts will pay for teachers. Um, more recently, just this past summer, I taught what I was uh, excited to do, which was one for students of any age, getting these same ideas directly to students. This is six interactive lessons. The first three are only 10 minutes each, and the last three are 15 to 20. So if you have any undergrads, younger age people who um, need some help, so it teaches that everyone can do math, it just goes against these messages, it shows math to be this really exciting, living, connected subject. I taught it um, with my undergrads at Stanford. It's being currently taken by 80,000 students of all ages, uh, some of whom are teachers and parents, and it's coming out probably in the next month in Spanish. So we're very hopeful that this, uh, we know, is helping people. At the end of this course, 75% um, of people say they've fundamentally changed their own belief about them, their own ability in math. Uh, so I'm going to show you a little bit of it. It's just a clip, little clip. Um, as I said, I taught at my undergrads, and I was able to draw on their different experiences of being soccer players and all sorts of things. When you make a mistake in math, your brain grows. Synapses fire in your brain. In fact, your brain grows when you make a mistake, but when you get work right, no brain growth happens. Let's look at the brain evidence. Scientists now know that experiences grow your brain, and the brain is so plastic that it can rewire itself and grow in a really short space of time. In lots of stores, you will see aisles that are pink, meant for girls, and aisles that are blue, meant for boys. And the blue ones, the boys, are building construction toys that are really meant for men. Stanford women's soccer team. Anyway, you can see that course was designed to be kind of interesting and engaging, and um, it's going down very well for people of all ages. So um, if you know of schools, kids, teachers who need to get some of these messages, that's a really short way to get them. And then after my online course, like that sum two summers ago, I was overwhelmed with thousands of emails from people saying, please, can we have more of this? Can we have more videos? Can we have more of the messages and Kathy and I set up what we originally was a non-profit called U-Cubed and it still has this language on it so we're just changing it um, and um, now is a centre at Stanford because Stanford looked at it and said I'm sorry that has to come inside Stanford so politics um, <laughs> so now it's inside Stanford and if you are any of these things and teacher, parent, student you, if you click on the links most of what's on the site is um, in those pages. If you scroll down this front page, you can see both of those online classes and you can get information on them there. We've just been finally given a, a big wadge of money from Gates, so we're going to move this up a notch and have a lot more. But we started putting resources this past summer. Uh, we had no money actually. UCubed was me, Kathy, and an undergrad at Stanford, and she only started in the summer, and we made these pages 
under these like teacher pages where there are tasks and advice and activities and videos and uh, we had 300,000 we have had 300,000 hits on those just in the last, since the summer so it's growing exponentially which is great it asks you to give your uh, to sign up and that means you get our newsletters if you want to do this you put in your name it does ask you to do a math problem <laughs> the web designers not me decided to put this in so they can tell you're not an alien but um Somebody tweeted out that they were glad it wasn't timed, so it's not timed. But um, if you sign up, then you get newsletters. This go, the, our newsletters are opened in 85 countries, um, so it has a very international spread. And if you would like something short and easy to read to communicate to others, some of the things I've shared with you today, the last thing I'll show you is an article I wrote for The Atlantic last year, late last year. It has all of this in it in a very short three-paper, three-page form. So if you Google The Atlantic and Joe Bowley, that, that will come up, and that's, um, yeah, got a lot of these ideas in it. So that's all I was going to share. I think that there's a lot of information in there, but... Maybe we can have a discussion about it. Yeah. It's a question about looked at all into women's only schools and if that changes anything about women's what schools? Sorry? Women's only women only schools. schools? Whether it's uh -huh. um, early years or whether I was at Barnard College, which is the women's college at Columbia. Mm -hmm. So when I see a math study about students at Columbia, that actually makes me wonder exactly who's a part of that study and whether is there a difference in technically the Columbia-based classroom versus the Barnard-based classroom because there's also kind of student flow. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Well, we do know on the generally the research on girls' schools and women-only environment shows much greater participation and achievement in, in math and science and. A lot of that comes about because you cannot really get the idea that math or science is for boys when your teacher is teaching it to an all-girls class. Um, there are many opportunities for girls to develop that idea in mixed schools, and many of them do. So uh, generally those show uh, better achievement in math and science in particular and, and participation rates. Yeah, I mean, that study at Columbia University was done on any students in Columbia, and I mean... Um, the math, the stereotyping they find comes from the faculty. Uh, you know, that's an issue that we have to... There are many math faculty who, as soon as women and students of colour in particular say to them, I'm struggling on this, the advice is, this class isn't for you. So um, we have to work at all levels of the system in changing these messages. I focus on K-12, but um, there are people here... More, more expertise than I that can tell you what's happening in math college departments also. Some of you, I'm sure, have been through math departments in uh, the universities, yeah. Yes, thank you so much again for your presentation. Thanks. Um, I think that what comes to mind, you mentioned faculty and mm -hmm. um, just the teachers. I recently have been a part of some legislative advocacy um, around expanding physical education in schools. And what comes to the conversation, interestingly, from gym teachers mm -hmm. is the introduction of math and the wanting to link, um, you know, mathematics with their physical education classes mm -hmm. because they feel, one, that it makes the class more fun for them, 
and it's supplementing the, um, the mathematics because right now they're struggling to get more physical education and um, physical activity and recess because of the minutes in the day. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. realizing that they're combating obesity and all these other mm -hmm. chronic illnesses mm -hmm. and at our population level. And so it's interesting because obviously going to the White House presenting this might be in the back of um, the first lady's mind of sort of, you know, combating obesity and some of the yeah. other right. issues by sort of integrating mathematics yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be great to do that. My, my only, the fear that kind of sort of triggers up for me is whether the people doing that are giving the right messages about math and I don't I think in, a, in elementary schools it's fine um, and I'm not too worried I know that the coaches and PE teachers in secondary schools uh, need a bit of work in their language and thinking about math actually my my own daughter goes to an all-girls school which she just started and they they're great there but the PE teacher said to her in his first interaction with her, she said, oh, I don't know if I'll get in the team. And he went, oh, don't worry, you'll get in the team. Everybody gets in the team. We have the athletes and then we have the mathletes. So she comes home and tells me this straight away. I'm like, okay. This is <laughs> my first conversation with the school before, <laughs> before we even started. But um, anyway, yeah, no, I think in general it's a really good idea. And uh, as long as those kind of ideas aren't uh, coming into them... Yeah. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I was especially interested in your findings about anxiety. Uh -huh. um, I thought that was something that I had not heard before about how female students are affected perhaps more by anxiety. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about that and whether it was that they were experiencing more anxiety or that when they do experience anxiety, that's blocking their achievement and their ability more in that moment? Yeah, I mean, it's both of those things. What we know and we've known for a long time is that when boys and girls achieve equally, when they get the same scores, the girls are a lot less confident in their ability, even with, when they're exactly the same on scores and boys. We have known this for decades. It's been a really long problem in education. But again, one of those things that like, people will just brush away, women and girls have anxiety. It's just the way, the way it is. What, we know, what we're knowing more about, particularly with the brain scans and others, is why women and girls have this anxiety and what we do to produce that in the school system. So we know that there's a lot more anxiety, but it, it tends to be in math. And there's a very clear reason for that. It's the way we teach and uh, use, you know, the messages we give kids about math. But so there's more anxiety amongst girls. And then that, that anxiety has a dr dramatically negative effect on how they achieve. And we see that in the PISA data that there's 38 countries that boys are achieving at high levels and they you know, control for anxiety, the achievement differences go away. So... Given the same level of yeah. anxiety, mm -hmm. they're achieving the same. Given the same level. So uh, if they are able to look statistically at the impact of anxiety, they, they can see that it's only the anxiety that's reducing achievement for girls in that way. So... Um, yeah, it's a really important issue, but it's a big one because girls develop anxiety around math because they're not given access to understanding and changing that where they get to a point where they're comfortable with that understanding um, is a big endeavor. Yeah. There's lots of questions. Yeah. Uh -huh. Thanks. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. And so the graduate school became involved, and it was a question of, well, how do we quantify and understand and erase two years of coursework, and why should we have, or why, why is there so much attrition mm -hmm. in general school? And so it gets into the issue of the pipeline, mm -hmm. so women not finishing the PhD, right. and then fewer number of women pursuing the course. So it's a huge issue. Another part that complicated it was the pool. I thought it was really interesting, the data at the beginning that you gave about the number of degrees, mm -hmm. bachelor's degrees. Yeah, I, there was, and there were a lot of people in the audience, and one of the people was uh, Lockheed Martin, who's a bit senior guy there, and uh, is also um, on the White House policy committees about the pipeline problem, and we talked, he saw the presentation, and was very interested in going further and, and doing more on this. I mean, I think it it's it's a conversation we have to raise up that women are not choosing to do these subjects and they're not choosing to do them because of the way that we treat them in education and the exam issue is an interesting one and the PISA issue I mean we know those kids are achieving equally and then they uh, test like that produces those differences I probably many of you are aware of Claude Steele's work which incredibly shows that when students take tests simply marking off their gender at the beginning of the test causes girls to underachieve in a math and science test so in, at first he found in their first studies they found that when they talked to people and said did you know that math is a subject where you know boys are often ahead of girls and then they marked off their gender the girls would underachieve they, they did more and more studies to the point where they find that they don't need to have that conversation. They simply gave them a test with the gender on the front, and that's because of what he calls the stereotype threat, or the stereotypes are always in the air, and as soon as you can invoke it so easily just by putting your gender on a test. So tests produce gender differences. Um, it's one of the reasons we should be relying a lot more on coursework and what people can actually do and not on those tests that produce those. But yeah, that pipeline issue is um, hopefully one that's, well, I think the White House is well aware of. Whether they are enough aware of how to change it is another matter, I think. So you had a, someone over here? I'm, I'm, I'm biasing the back of the room. <laughs> well, I was going to bring up the stereotype threat. Oh, just okay, great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and sort of some of the worksheets that I see coming home with my daughter look very different from mm -hmm. the worksheet that you are yeah, yeah. on the screen that I remember. So, so yeah, the Common Core is uh, generally a good thing. Um, what we know that the Common Core does is, um, I mean, the, the, uh, the, about the only thing I'm excited about in the Common Core is they have brought in a set of standards called the mathematical practices. 
the mathematical practices is not content to be learned, but it's the activities in which mathematicians engage and things like problem solving, reasoning, making sense, persevering. And those are now in the content of the Common Core and teachers have to pay attention to that. We need kids problem solving. So that's a good thing. What I don't like about the Common Core is they have pushed these good things like problem solving, but laid out the same enormous list of content. Um, so it's very difficult for teachers to go in depth. But it, they've, it's really improved at elementary and middle, but high school is the same long list of obsolete content that is never used. Um, so I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't love the Common Core, but it's better. Well, depending what state you're in, actually. In California, it's a lot better than what we had. Uh, some states like your own had actually pretty good standards to begin with. I, you know, I don't... It's interesting, the opposition to the Common Core, because some of it's political. Um, some of it is coming from parents who are saying, this works too hard for my kids. My kids can't do this. And you heard me say in that online video that we now know that mistakes are when your brain grows the most. Um, we want kids making mistakes, working on challenging work. They'll only be able to do that if they have the positive messages about how good it is to make mistakes and, and be challenged. But um, the, it's generally, the, the common cause generally a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, I, I taught maths in the UK for the last three years. Um, uh-huh. And, and I'm just thinking about um, being in the classroom and other teachers in my school and how easy it would be for them to, to switch from a sort of more traditional way of teaching to what you're mm -hmm. advocating. Um, and I mean, I, I like was thinking, I read your stuff when I was a teacher as well and had some conversations with people. A lot of the pushback would come from the fact that in the UK, at least, the, the tests are really high stakes and the tests are, are kind of like just getting on. Procedural, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah not like mm -hmm. think about yeah I mean we know that the testing is really important teachers teach the way they the, teach for the tests and the UK is going in an awful direction and has been for some time and the education minister <coughs> just this past September decided that you have to have memorized all your times tables up to your 12th times table by the time you're eight so there we have the perfect conditions for math anxiety, and we can talk about what's happening in the UK, but yes, the tests are really important to change. We do know that when teachers teach for understanding, they go slower, they go into more depth. Kids do better, even on traditional tests and procedural tests. So moving to these ways of working that we teach teachers is all good, even if the testing is um, rote and procedural, but kids still do better. Um, in fact, one of the studies that... I did that found this most clearly was in the UK where teachers abandoned the traditional teaching and taught kids through big open-ended projects or through school uh, where they didn't cover all the content, they didn't do any procedural work, they at massively out-achieved the kids who sat through traditional math classes um, on GCSE. So we know that teaching kids through understanding will... But I in this country, it's interesting because the new assessments are promising to do something very different. And they are um, asking kids to explain and reason. They're not multiple choice. I have sat teachers in front of the release items and they are freaking out. So they're going through them going, oh my God, I, I can't 
train my kids to choose D anymore and and um, they all think their kids won't be able to do it because they're having to explain and do modeling and so the tests here are changing quite significantly and they are going to push that change in classrooms I think it's going to be kind of difficult and we're going to see some really low test results for some time but that change is happening here and just one extra and will be happening at higher levels I think there's a big move against the testing done in college university GREs SATs the head of Google recently said they are no longer looking at any test scores or university records when people come to them because it is no predictor of who is a good performer at Google and they only want to see what people can do through work they can do. So I think when we're getting these voices and things are going to change, yeah, I don't know where to choose. Thank you very much for the fantastic presentation. I was wondering whether you look at more informal setting for education, like science centers mm -hmm. or science museums, to give a little bit of more different setting for, like, Mathematics yeah, I mean, I think there's an, a lot of great things going on in STEM, in, in museums and uh, camps, summer schools, all sorts of informal education that's very productive, and many kids can be turned on to STEM and to math in, in those places. I uh, worry that we can have those great things happening, but when they go back into a classroom and they're getting constant communication of fixed messages about their potential, it's very hard for them to keep that. But they're certainly not hurting and they're doing a good thing. For me, the place that needs to change most urgently is public schools, but for sure, though, I think those are great addition, yeah. Um, your work reminds me a little bit of um, Amy Edmondson's over at Harvard Business School. I don't know if you know her research on psychological safety. I she looks know, at, actually. I think you would like it a lot, she looks mm -hmm. at the adoption of new technology and it's um, the rate of adoption of new technology, in essence, the, you know, the mm -hmm. steepness of the learning curve in relation to this cultural, kind of an organizational culture, team cultural notion of psychological safety. Hmm. And she has developed this instrument where she has a bunch of items like, Oh, it's really important to discuss mistakes, mm -hmm. or it's really important to hide mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, and she's done a lot of research in the medical field where she finds like groups of teams of nurses where they believe they really need to hide things versus they right. believe that they really need to talk about it. And this yeah, comes yeah. up with the military and after huh. action plans. But I wonder about if you've ever thought huh. about, or maybe you've already done this, or know somebody who's done this, looking at cultures um, of. Uh, classroom cultures or school cultures around these types of things like mm -hmm. having items re reflective of Dweck's, mm -hmm. Carl Dweck's theory or stereotypes related to math and whether or not anybody's done research in mm -hmm. schools or classrooms where people could, you know, diagnose the extent to which they've created a constructive, more right. or less constructive learning culture. Yeah. Um, you want to speak to that? Tripod, right here, Ron Ferguson's work. The tripod has got a lot of elements that look at classroom mm -hmm. culture, particularly mm -hmm. around how you treat failure. There's a group in Germany that's identifying uh, how to measure the air climate 
you know, particularly in mathematics classrooms. That's interesting. Looking at these kinds of characters. Right. So tripod and panorama so are two examples of those. Well, I mean, what we know, and which I didn't talk about today, is that math, in mostly in this country, is a performance subject for kids. And um, what I mean by that is if, if you ask most kids what their role is in math classrooms, they'll say it's to get questions right. And they won't say, oh, it's about this amazing subject that's connected and applied. Or So this really came home to me recently when a, um, a colleague said her six-year-old son had come home from school saying he didn't like math. And she said asked him why and he said because math is too much answer time and not enough learning time so we can think wow that's a six-year-old's really on the ball but actually <laughs> actually kids know this they know it from kindergarten they go into math class it's about answering questions and they've grown up in a testing culture where they have not had mistakes valued there's one thing that's valued that's correct procedures and answers on tests so I think the mistakes studies are super important. The study I was kind of referring to in that course, they found that when people take tests and they're doing brain scans, they found that when they make a mistake, their brain spark, synapses fire. When they get questions right, nothing happens in the brain. And so math teachers say, oh, but they must have worked through the mistake and got it right to have the brain spark. And uh, not the case. And in fact, what happens is there are two possible brain sparks when people get things wrong. First brain spark comes when they get it wrong. The second one comes when they're aware that they've made a mistake. So that actually happens without you even knowing you've made a mistake. And that seems incredible. But um, the reason it happens and the best knowledge on this is it's because when you make a mistake, your brain is struggling. And it's when you are struggling that your brain is growing and sparks are firing. So this is really ironic because most kids in the U.S. hate making mistakes. They think it means they're not a math person, they can't do math. So even that single message around mistakes changes everything. And I've had teachers send me videos of their kids talking about how their teachers shared this message at the start of the year and how their whole history of math, anxiety and trauma just unraveled for them so you know changing these this sort of performance culture into a learning culture where kids are thinking they're there in math classrooms to learn and one of the things I share is I mentioned briefly most math questions that are used in math classes are short right and wrong questions and those questions transmit fixed messages to kids about math and achievement Questions in math class must always have the space inside them to learn something. And I talk to teachers about this all the time. If a question is something that kids give an answer to, that is a fixed mindset message that they're getting. In every question, there must be space for learning inside it. And um, so these, when classrooms really fundamentally change in these ways and they uh, shift from being performance cultures to cultures that focus on the value of mistakes and achievement shoots up. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much for being here. That's really interesting. Um, so much of my work focuses on how we evaluate performance, which is measure performance, mm -hmm. sometimes in organizations, not so much in the classroom. Um, and so first, what I'm learning is, or what I have learned, is that we do a horrible job predicting of what, whether what, or measuring of what we measure predicts anything. 
Mm -hmm. so that's a Google example. So it's right. such horrible. So laws of performance evaluations are but we have actually very little sense of do they do anything for us organizationally. And I have a great hmm. study for you that I came across um, about medical school in Texas, which is a natural experiment. And so they did their normal kind of rating of students, admitted the students they wanted to admit, and then Texas, that's why it's a beautiful experiment, said, oh, we don't have enough doctors. Mm -hmm. You all, the universities, need to admit 50% more. So now all the universities, that's actually sad for all of you to hear, but had to go back to the pool, and of course they chose their 200 favorite ones. Now they had to go back down to people who are ranked number 5,000. That's because everyone else was already snatched up. Mm -hmm. And they followed these people then over 20 years. Did the number, the person ranked 5,000 who would have never made it into medical school, did they do worse than mm -hmm. the person who's ranked number mm -hmm. 20? Mm -hmm. And there's zero difference. There is zero difference in how they wow. perform medical school, how they mm -hmm. perform, you know, afterwards. So that's really scary. That's how little, uh, and that's, you know, one of the mm -hmm. few studies actually. Mm -hmm. How little evidence we have on right. what do we test, what do we measure, what right. do we predict, what does mm -hmm. anything. Yeah, and we also know that you know when schools identify kids as gifted uh, in the early years, it, it has no relation to how they do later on. I mean, you cannot tell if a child, if you even believe in notions of giftedness, you cannot know what kids are capable of. And um, so, no, that is. I would like to see that study. You can send me the reference. I, I believe it. Yeah. Um, I Uh -huh. So in learning a language, um, there's a lot of anxiety around making mistakes to yeah. someone rather not speak at all than to speak and make a mistake. And, yeah. um, I taught communicatively, so for me it was like, you have to say something to learn anything because I can't talk to you if you don't speak. Right. Um, and I, I'm just, teachers in Ukraine were really resistant to changing how they were teaching in this classroom. They saw the merit of having a native English speaker in the room to speak with their students, mm -hmm. but they saw that what they did as a teacher with these more procedural functions for language as being more important mm. method. Mm -hmm. And what I would see is like on a written test, um, their method was working for students, and the students were getting the answers or anything like that, but they had absolutely no ability to communicate right. the language they were learning, which begs the question, why learn a language if mm -hmm. you can't communicate? And so I just think about that um, when it comes to math as well, and just what I was told in my science classes in high school, all the way to my biology teacher telling me, like, you're never going to get this right, so mm -hmm. just memorize all mm -hmm. of the answers. Right. <laughs> and so I'm wondering how much resistance your, you experience among educators when you're talking about changing the procedures around teaching. Mm -hmm. Because when I speak to people specifically about math and mm -hmm. my, what my own ideas are about what would happen right. in math education, from educators and parents alike, I get a lot of pushback, yeah. especially around things like m learning your multiplication tables by heart, or the fact that we don't talk about mathematical concepts until middle mm -hmm. school and high mm -hmm. school, that you're just expected to spew these, right. these answers up until the point that now you get to learn these mathematical concepts, yeah. so that now this stuff also is supposed to make sense to you. Are you receiving a lot of pushback from Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, I think we've been in a situation for years where we've had a huge amount of research that tells us what helps kids achieve in math classrooms. And the frustration for me as an academic is it just doesn't get out to schools. And the, the people who control that domain are very traditional um, 
And when I arrived at Stanford, this is an interesting story, um, one of the mathematicians who campaigns against any change in reform, who, who campaigns to have kids sitting in rows and be lectured at, uh, told me not to talk about my work in America. I was like summoned to his office. When I produced a follow-on study from the one I'd produced in England, he accused me of scientific misconduct to try and stop the results coming out. So talk about resistance. I ended up leaving. I was so disgusted with both him and Stanford, I left and went back to England. And, and then I came back because it was just too rainy. And <laughs> uh, I came back. Stanford kept asking me to come back. Not him but other people are someone. And um, I published the results. If you Google my name, it's one of the top things that comes up. There's a web page that says, Joe Bowler reveals attacks. And I just wrote out with, this, actually, the person who was really instrumental in supporting me in doing that was Claude Steele, who was the dean of the school at the time. And um, we published, I just published what they had been doing. And this guy who tried to stop my work has controlled math education across the country for the decade before. He got himself on the California Standards Committee. He goes around from state to state trying to get reforms out of schools. So when I published this page, first of all, it was the most tweeted story in education that weekend. It had 30,000 hits just the weekend I published it. So it went hugely around. And... Um, I was inundated, sadly, with uh, emails from uh, other academics who'd experienced what I called academic bullying, and they were all in science and math departments, medical schools. Um, so it's a pretty grim picture of gender equity across the US. But yeah, I have probably experienced more resistance than most people. Interestingly, when I... And, and one of the guys who attacks me, who also is a guy who refers to black kids as pickaninnies, so it tells you the kind of people we're dealing with. He's a prof math professor. Um, wrote on a website, I am the, their worst possible scenario, a researcher in a top university with data. They know. They knew that they what they were doing was trying to stop it getting out. So there are organized movements to stop... Um, math being a broader subject and unfortunately some of these people are campaigning because they do not hold values of equity they don't want all kids to be able to achieve actually uh, they want some kids so this read about it it's a pretty interesting story <laughs> well, you've inspired us thank you so much Please join us next week. Um, Ileana, Ileana Carranza, uh, a technical advisor uh, of the Gender, Gender Innovation Lab at the World Bank, is going to talk about soil endowment, female labor participation, and the demographic deficit of women. I think that sounds like a euphemism um, <laughs> of women in India. So missing, missing girls. Thank you. Thank you.